Hello and welcome to another edition of the Todd Pod. My name is Todd Lisenby. My guest is Eli Letterman. We're going to do a full wrap on OU season and talk about the offseason for the Sooners coming up. But first, a thank you to our sponsors of the Todd Pod, MidFirst Bank, Next Generation Roofing, FireLakeJobs.com, the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum, and Oklahoma Ford Dealers. I've told you about Sammy Joe, my Ford Edge, many times. She's got over 180,000 miles on her. She's reliable. I've driven her all over this country uh, covering UCO basketball and football through the Flint Hills many a times. If Sammy Joe can get it done for me, then a Ford can get it done for you. So go visit your best in Oklahoma Ford dealers today for the full uh, all the lot all the deals on Ford's full lineup of trucks and SUVs because Ford is the best in Oklahoma. Also a big thank you to Two Fellas Moving and twofellas.com is where you can find them. The number 2fellas.com. None of your friends want to help you move, your family don't want to help you move. Let's be honest, if you want moving done right, you need to call Two Fellas who know how to do it right at Two Fellas Moving. And not only will they give you a quote with no strings attached, but as spring comes up on us, they've got junk haul services, dumpster rentals as well if you want to do some spring cleaning. Again, check them out online, the number twofellas.com. Now we get to the Todd Pod and we bring in our guest today. He is a frequent guest of the Todd Pod. He is Eli Letterman. You can find his stuff at eli-letterman.com. He's part of the Sellout Crowd Network, the host of the Letterman Jacket, and uh, a fan of the, what, fifth place? Tottenham Hotspur in the Premier League for now right? just for now just for now you laugh it up yuck it up now laugh while you can because we are coming in 2024 mm-hmm. yeah I'll believe that when I see it uh, we are going to talk quite a bit about 2024 and the Sooners offseason as they get ready for the SEC next year but before we do that Eli what was the Alamo Bowl experience like from just the game itself to the behind the scenes you know how excited did you uh, feel fans were at the game and then you know, how do you how do you think it went in performance number one for Jackson Arnold? Yeah, well, all right. Starting with San Antonio and just the, the scene, right? Uh, San Antonio is a maybe a perfect city for a neutral site game. I know it's been talked about in the past. They've hosted Final Fours. They've talked about it for like playoff, college football playoff games. Apparently, Jerry Jones doesn't want to share uh, any part of Texas with anybody else. But in terms of like proximity to the stadium and things to do, the river walk, like it's got everything. I think there were a lot of OU fans who really enjoyed it. Um, and I think one of the tethers to this that made this game exciting, not just that it was a good matchup between two teams that seemingly cared, which I know uh, it's the whole debate of bowl season. You watch most of these bowl games. Most of these teams really do care. Only so many blowouts of teams that were just ravaged. But two teams that really wanted to be there. It was a physical game. And, and beforehand, you could just tell that the fan base was excited. And I think some of that certainly had to do with the fact that Jackson Arnold was making his first career start. That made this something other than a meaningless game, quote unquote. And uh, as far as it went, you know, I'd written something in the lead up that freshman quarterbacks or not even freshman quarterbacks, but quarterbacks making their first career start in a bowl game haven't fared well. So I wasn't expecting 450 yards, four touchdowns, no picks. Um, I think you saw everything you would have expected to see. You saw some struggles and, and things where it would look like a freshman quarterback playing behind a makeshift offensive line and an offense with a new coordinator that is going to change in the offseason. And then at other points, you saw all the promise you would expect and that people have been expecting from Jackson Arnold. And I think on the whole, I mean, you can make your overreactions if you want, but I think you saw every flash of what you would have wanted to see from Jackson Arnold. And uh, if I were a betting man, 
all the other things, silly mistakes, throws that maybe you should have thrown away instead of into coverage, you'll fix those between now and September. What would you say, if anything, Eli, you learned from Jackson Arnold, from Seth Luttrell in this bowl game, or do you look at it as more of a one-off and we'll really learn more about them next season? Well, I think the Sooners, they, they didn't need to learn a ton about Jackson Arnold. They've seen it since he got on campus last January. They've been big believers ever since then, and, and certainly before then, too, when they brought him to campus. But they felt like December, not the bowl game. And, and that's where, you know, anymore, these bowl games are as much about the contest as they are about the 15 practices before him. Jackson Arnold aced the test in his first run as the Sooners QB1. Um, running the offense for that month, going through practice, growing over the course of the month of December. That was the other piece in my story that I had before the game was that, um, you know, whether it was his offensive linemen or his receivers or Seth Luttrell and Brent Venables, everyone had seen a lot of growth and had been really impressed with the maturity of Jackson Arnold at the end of his freshman year. And then in the game, I, I think you saw that he stood tall and took hits and outside of the throws. I mean, he had some beautiful throws, the Brennan Thompson touchdown, uh, was impressive. I thought lost a little bit in the shuffle of it all was the Nick Anderson touchdown where he's thrown against his body and he just finds a guy in a really narrow corner of the end zone. Um, Crazy but it catch was, too I, by Anderson. That was, I, you know, we, we did our award show on the Letterman jacket, uh, the jackets. You were among the hosts, Todd, illustrious host of an illustrious award show. One that didn't make the cut was that catch because it was, but the reason I had it there that was like Oklahoma's offensive future on one play. He had Jackson Arnold rolling out against his body, throwing against his body, and Nick Anderson making a really impressive toe drag catch to set the freshman touchdown record. There you go. That that could be your battery for the next two years. And uh, I guess all that to say, as impressive as the throws were, and as much as you could harp on the interceptions or the fumbles or the mistakes Jackson Arnold made, he looked like a quarter, like a like a Division One elite high-level college quarterback in the way he took the hits and the way he held up and the way he led the team and even the way he spoke post-game. All of that would be the stuff that I think would give me a lot of confidence if I were an OU fan, not harping on what happened in the third quarter of the Alamo Bowl, a game that is not going to hold a lot of bearing when we get back to football next fall. So OU trotted out last week with that giant, huge, gaudy Alamo Bowl logo on their jersey. Terrible. It was really bad. And right below it was the Big 12 logo for the last time in Norman. Uh, the Big 12 logo underneath of that Alamo Bowl logo. Next year, it'll be an SEC logo on the jersey. So now the offseason gets going. And the portal's already been kind of whirling and uh, buzzing for Oklahoma. Before we get to the portal, though, I know we had <clears throat> talked about this the last time you were on. Billy Bowman had announced he was coming back. Danny Stutzman pulled that Uno reverse card on us and said, just kidding, I'm coming back again next year. Now, as we record this, last night, Woody Washington announced that he's coming back as well. I mean, I, I think it goes without saying, right, that those are some huge retention uh, retention moments for this Oklahoma football team to keep those guys on the roster. Yeah, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say, like it's not as big as Danny Stutzman or Billy Bowman, and it's you could probably debate, you know, what's more important, getting back to John Terry and Jacob Lacey up front or, or Woody Washington at corner. But to me, this is the one that solidifies what's been a really big three, four weeks for Oklahoma's 2024 defense in the sense of who they're bringing back. Because let's say there's a world where all those guys had gone to the NFL. Oh, you would be licking its wounds. It would be hitting the portal and it would be thinking a lot about having to 
promote a lot of its depth and it's really talented depth. They've got a lot of guy, good guys on this defense, but there is such a difference of coming back in 2024 with all that experience. You've really now got, um, you have a true defense that you can lean on. And instead of saying, gosh, how are they going to find a new linebacker? How are they going to find a new safety? How are they going to find a new number one corner? We're going to debate, you know, is there going to be competition at the number two corner spot with, with Gendry Williams and, uh, Dejan Malone, uh, does Kip Lewis challenge for that spot next to Danny Stutzman? The defense is intact. That's the point. And, and Woody Washington is kind of the final piece in that, and he's the most experienced piece in that. 35 career starts, only guy who started every game under Brent Venables. Uh, he, I think, you know, quiet, but at quarterback, uh, cornerback, that's a position you don't want to hear a guy's name a lot. He didn't get thrown at a ton this year. And uh, OU will come back next year with a number one corner. Uh, and, and that really gives them stability. And and he's a guy that Brent Venables spoke about so highly all year as a leader, again, a quieter leader, and maybe not a Danny Stutzman, but someone who really brought along a young cornerback group this year. Next fall, that's going to be a group that has some exciting guys in it behind him. And to have Woody Washington leading the charge, I, I think is huge. Great football name as well, Woody Washington. I've always oh, so appreciated good. that. It's such a good I mean, football between name. Between him and uh, Billy Bowman, just in that secondary, yep. like those are... And I'll say I'll give Reggie Pearson some credit because that's a good strong safety name too. Yeah, he they, doesn't they some quite, good names in that secondary this year. He doesn't have the alliteration that Woody Washington and Billy Bowman have, but at at the same time, Reggie Pearson is good. Uh, it's I mean they're all playing for second on the list behind uh, OU former great cornerback. You may be too young to remember Chijoki Onyanagetcha when he was uh, when he was playing corner for Oklahoma back in the day. That's one a little bit before my time. You're exactly okay. right. Uh, Anya Nagetcha, I always thought was a really cool last name. Let's talk about the portal because, you know, I had Keegan Renault on a couple weeks ago, and Keegan thinks that OU got their number one receiver for next year in the portal in Deion Burks. I know that there are still some things that are out there, like the Nick Scourton kid from Purdue is a guy who's highly, highly coveted that would be a huge get for Oklahoma on the defensive line, but just kind of as, as we sit right now, we're recording this on January the 3rd with who Oklahoma's gotten in the portal. Who do you think are the big difference makers next year? And then also kind of wrapped into that, where do you think Oklahoma needs to go now into the portal? Where do they need to make some waves in the time before next season starts? Well, I think on the whole, they've done well so far. I mean, if you look at it, they felt certainly like they had to address the offensive line. And we can talk more about that. Um, but they went out and they got another cornerback. At at the time, you wondered if that was a response to something they knew about Woody Washington, or we really don't know yet. You know how much Woody Washington was really thinking about the NFL. He left that door open after the season finale. Has not spoken to reporters since, um, and then made his decision last night. We're recording here on Wednesday. Um, but they went out and got a cornerback. They got a top top wide receiver in Deion Burks from Purdue, one of the top guys in the portal at that position. Someone who, you know, as Keegan said, could come in next year uh, and absolutely be the number one. And if he is, then you just think, well, great. If Jaleel Farouk, Andrew Anthony, and Nick Anderson don't have to be the number one, and they can be, you push everyone down the line one spot, and suddenly there's some incredible depth there. And, and that's before we even get to Jaden Gibson or Jaquez Petaway or anybody else. Uh, Samuel Franklin, the running back from UT Martin, really experienced, had a really big year, something like 1,300 yards rushing double-digit touchdowns this past season. He's going to have to prove that he can do it at the next level. He's coming from FCS football, but shoot, uh, if they made it work with Tawi Walker, uh, who, who I also think can run just about anywhere in the country, and he's about to do it at Wisconsin, which is the place to go if you want to run the football. 
Um, but, you know, a guy who can come in and compete and pu- at the very least push uh, Gavin Sawchuk. We'll see where Javante Barnes is after this season. You know, he was injured all year, playing through it a bit. Taylor Tatum comes in. He's going to come in in the summer, and so that could be an impediment, you know, on top of just being a freshman to being an immediate contributor. But they've stocked the skill positions there. Tight end, go and get Bauer Sharp, a really intriguing guy from southeastern Louisiana, converted quarterback, kind of fits the athlete mold that they're looking for there. I think they've done a really good job. And, and from here, it's probably just filling some holes. If, if they had lost Woody Washington, I don't really know what's out there, but I don't know if they could have found a, a cornerback of his caliber. So that helps. Uh, you might look on the defensive line. Can they add? You mentioned Nick Scourton from Purdue. If, you, if they could get him, he's supposed to visit Norman on Saturday. He's also got visits to Florida State. He was at A&M earlier this week. He's going to Missouri. Um, you get him. Oh, of you course you had your... to throw Missouri in there, didn't you? Well, the latest, and this is not my reporting. This is uh, kind of in the recruiting realm. You know, I heard today that Florida State and Missouri might be the front runners. But let's say he, he lands with the Sooners. I think it's, you know, if he picks them next week, let's say, it'll be early January before the offseason program is started. You can already pencil in your starters for next year on the defensive line because it'll go. Scourton, Lacey, Terry, and Ethan Downs. We'll see if they get there, but they may look to, to address needs there. And then I think um, the offensive line is obviously the place you go because they've added Spencer Brown. Um, I'm gonna. We're all gonna have to work on the name, but Fabechi Weiwu, I believe, is how it's pronounced from North Texas. Guy who played under Seth Luttrell uh, at North Texas. That's two additions. You'd think they might need another one or two. And you know, this was that time of year last year. Uh, where, where Walter Rouse hadn't even committed to Nebraska yet before decommitting and picking the Sooners. There's still time, um, but they're going to have to hit that market. And I do think they'll probably go look for another tight end, whether that's Jake Roberts from Baylor or, or somebody else. You mentioned Taylor Tatum. Do you feel like Tatum or David Stone's another guy who obviously is a very highly coveted uh, recruit or highly ranked recruit coming in? Do you feel like any of those true freshmen can make a real impact next year? And if so, who do you think it'll be? So the three you would go to mostly just based on like the rate, you know, their prospect ranking and, and the positions they're stepping into are David Stone on the defensive line, Taylor Tatum at running back, and then Devon Mitchell at tight end. I guess I'll go in reverse order. Devon Mitchell physically, I think, looks like he could be ready. I mean, he, re- he reclassified and that was always his plan, but he is 18 years old. So it's not like he's a 17 year old getting here and he's going to get here mid year. I think if you're an OU fan that is going to expect is going to place all of the first team like he needs to be our guy next year eggs in that basket i think that's a risk just because you're putting that on an 18 year old and that's why bauer sharp was an important addition that's why perhaps if they go get another portal tight end at least gives you cover at a really important spot taylor tatum i i guess i'd say both ways i could see every reason why he could contribute next year we saw javante barnes contribute as a freshman in 2022 Gavin Sawchuk at the very end this year, less so in that room. Uh, didn't really happen for, for Caleb Hicks or Dalen Smothers, who's now in the portal himself. Um, and I do think, you know, I, we know Taylor Tatum. He's a two-sport star. He's sticking around Longview for spring baseball. If that's the difference in, in what he can do in terms of major contributions in year one, you know, not being there for spring camp and showing up in, in the summer, that could be the case. That doesn't put any ceiling on what he can do in Norman. And I would say it's the easy pick, but David Stone, looks to some degree like physically in a place and and you'd imagine after his offseason program with Jerry Schmidt might be even further along like somebody who could who could be in that rotation next year and and it's why 
holding on to Jacob Lacey and, and DeJon Terry is so big. You don't need David Stone next year to be that guy. But if he can rotate in um, and, and make some contributions, I, I think it would be an incredible start, obviously. And he feels like a guy that OU feels that confident about and that a lot of evaluators out there feel like can can at least be in the mix early on. Yeah, and, and you know, Stone play also plays a position that's going to have the most rotation in defensive line. So he's going to get snaps early uh, just because more guys are going to get some snaps if he can take advantage of them. I could certainly see him being a guy who uh, who gets a lot of heavy playing time late in the season. He's basically played small-level college football the last couple of years at IMG, right? I mean, that's that's kind of what you get when you go there. So I will be interested to see uh, how he fits in next season. I So last week I was filling in on the morning show on the franchise, and I mentioned we had Bob Prisbillo on, and I was talking to Bob, and I said, you know, there, to me, there's four parts of an off season. There's now in college football, there's mm-hmm. retention, which OU has aced, right? They've retained everybody they wanted to retain. Maybe not Caden Green. Uh, Dylan Gabriel was someone who I don't think they expected to retain. So not a huge surprise there. But for the most part, retention wise, Oklahoma's done pretty well on that. You've got recruitment and you know, it remains to be seen if the recruiting class is good, but there were no last minute flips on Oklahoma on signing day. It was a very comfortable signing day. Exactly. Which I'm sure Brent Venables is grateful for, and so was I. Yeah, I'm sure you were. So that's two. You've got the third one, which is the portal. You've got to get guys in the portal. And, you know, Bob, Bob, as I talked to him last week, thinks that Oklahoma still needs to do more in the offensive line. And that may be the case, but for the most part in the portal, Oklahoma's done pretty well, and they've got a chance to ace that as well, especially if you could land somebody like, you know, Scourton. Although by the time this is released, he may have already committed somewhere else, but they've done pretty dang well in the portal. The fourth one is the most important one. It's the one that we won't have an answer to until next season, and that's development. So with that mm-hmm. in mind, from this year's team to next year's team, Give me a couple names of guys who, if OU is going to have a good year next year, they need to develop and get better in the offseason. Yeah, I I think that's that is absolutely the list. And I think just on the portal end, I'd say I'm, I probably side with Bob. And since then, they've picked up. Um, actually, they they picked up a cornerback, the Jocelyn Malaska from Bethany. But uh, I'd give them right now like a six and a half to a seven out of ten on the portal this year. And they are probably two or three signings away from it being closer to an eight or a nine. So that's where they're at. And that's where most teams are at this time of year because the, the window is now closed or closing, but I don't know. Uh, a bunch of Alabama guys hitting the portal as we speak. So there's going to be guys out there is the point. As far as development, this is that time of year where, you know, as you said, we won't really know till next fall, but we're only a few months away from getting to hear Brent Venables talk about all the guys he's excited about, the guys who have made a jump in the offseason program. I think the easy places to start are that class of 2023. Uh, let's take Jackson Arnold off the table because he's obvious, but PJ Adebaware and Peyton Bowen are the other two, the two five stars from that class uh, who feel like guys who in another year's time, uh, or at least by next fall, can be serious, serious contributors and, and should come back looking even more like college football players in terms of the, the build and all that. Um, you would have said Caden Green in that same conversation had had we been speaking about a month ago, but we're not there anymore. Uh, elsewhere, not so much freshman, but Robert Spears Jennings is a guy they've really liked, and he's been impressive when he's played. He's dealt with some injury issues. Uh, he was on the field plenty in the Alamo Bowl. 
they're going to be looking for safety help, I think, from within. And they have plenty of depth at the position, but he'd be somebody that I would look at and say, if he can be you know, another nine months developed and better entering his third season here, that would be someone I'd be really, really intrigued by. Uh, and then looking around, Jaquez Petaway was another 2023 guy they were really excited about when he got on campus. Blazing speed. I mean, you hear that about a lot of guys uh, at wide receiver, and that doesn't always predict um, performance, but he's kind of got all the tools, and we saw him just bits and pieces this year. I'd love if we saw him a bit more in what sounds like it's going to be a, a deep, competitive wide receiver room next year. Yeah, you mentioned wide receivers. You didn't even mention Gavin Freeman as well, who would be, I think, the seventh name uh, on, yeah. that, on that list of guys. So, And who knows? They may get another portal guy or two at wide receiver. You just never know. Uh, you did mention Jocelyn Malaska. I think that's the last name, right? Mm-hmm. Malaska. Uh, cornerback, right? Is that right? Preferred walk-on from Utah. Yeah. He was a three-star prospect in the 2022 class. Got a long way to go to be the best Jocelyn in OU sports history. I, I, think, <laughs> I don't think he's going to make it to being the best Jocelyn in OU sports history. But what if he did? I mean, what a, oh, that would be quite a story. Preferred walk-on from Bethany who comes back. And I don't even, what would he have to do? To eclipse Jocelyn Allo's, I don't think it's possible. Eli, honestly, I mean, oh, you would have to go undefeated and win a couple national championships, and he would have to have, have to like win some fifteen awards. interceptions or something. And then I, I think he'd still need to go hit like ninety home runs for Skip Johnson <laughs> right. baseball team. Right, right. Yeah, I still don't think uh, he would get it done. Uh, but yeah, uh, it, the portal gets for Oklahoma. I think so far are good. I don't think there's anything to freak out about yet. I think they've done a pretty solid job in the portal. The most important thing is retention. It's obviously an important offseason because the SEC is looming next year. We know Oklahoma's schedule. We now know the dates. This is a loaded question because so much could change with OU's roster. So much could change with everybody else's roster in the SEC. But as we sit here right now on January 3rd, Eli, if I were to ask you, who do you think OU is not better than in the SEC? What hmm. is that list of teams? Wow, that is tough. Can I pull up the list of teams just so I make sure I don't forget? Well, I, I mean, I think you start with Alabama, Georgia, and yes, you can. Yep. Alabama, um, Georgia. Yep. And I'm, yep. I think Ole Miss and Missouri have both done better in the portal to this point. Okay. And maybe bringing back, you know, just look at the quarterback position. And this might get us in trouble here, but like, you know, Jackson Dart and Brady Cook are two veteran quarterbacks coming back next year that Missouri and Ole Miss, respectively. I think I mixed them up in terms of the order there. But Jackson Dart and Ole Miss, Missouri with Brady Cook, you have two veteran quarterbacks coming back next year to talented teams that had good years this year that have, to this point, outdone Oklahoma in the portal. That's not to say that Jackson Arnold can't outpace them both next year and that OU in the next week and a half can't outpace those two schools in the portal. But I think right now, those are two schools that went out with a bang this year. Both had big uh, New Year's Six wins and uh, and are bringing back veteran quarterbacks. You'd probably, for right now, have to put them ahead as well. Would you put Texas ahead of Oklahoma? I mean, they just played in the college football semifinal. Now you're really trying to get us in trouble. The answer is yes. Uh, if you look at the betting odds, I saw some today that had Texas, I think, with the third best national title odds at like 9-1. to one. OU wasn't far behind on the list, but I think they were closer to like 40-1. to one. Um, you probably have to for, for right now. Okay, and I'm, I'm guessing that's probably where the list stops. You wouldn't have LSU ahead of them. 
No, you wouldn't have. They just, I mean, LSU. I need to see them defend a pass. Right, right. Uh, although a single solitary pass. I agree with you on LSU. Although Oklahoma's got to go to LSU, and that's not going to be easy. Mm-hmm. Um, what I find amazing is if LSU. Would you say LSU's the next team, or would you throw in like Tennessee, Kentucky? You know, Tennessee's in a very similar spot. Um, you know, they're going to have a first-time starting quarterback, Nico Imaleva. I'm a Imaleva, I believe is how you pronounce it. I know he's people joke he's the perfect portal quarterback. Imaleva, last name essentially spe- spells out that that exact thing. But um, they're in a similar spot, and I would probably you'd really have to break it down there. But I would put Oklahoma ahead of them. And you would put? Would you? How about this? Who would you put ahead, LSU or Tennessee? That's tough only because I don't know how much, and I think it's a lot, but that Jaden Daniels papered over some cracks at LSU. It's a really big year for LSU. That actually might be, I don't know, it's a big year. Every year's a big year at Tennessee, and every year's a big year at LSU. But Brian Kelly, who, as of today, uh, parted ways with his entire defensive staff and needs a new coordinator on offense, has a lot of work to do, and that's without Jaden Daniels. Let's say just for, Maybe that's, just for the sake of my point, you put LSU over mm-hmm. Tennessee. Sure. That would sure. mean that would mean you say these teams right now. You would say, not you're not predicting they're going to finish better than Oklahoma. But right now, if you had to handicap it, you would have Georgia in no particular order at the top above Oklahoma, Georgia, Alabama, Texas, Old Miss, Missouri. Right. So five teams above Oklahoma, and then you have and Oklahoma plays four of those teams. By then the you way. have LSU right behind them. Oklahoma plays five of them if you count LSU. So, I mean. And throw in Tennessee, and you got six. Exactly, exactly. So, in an eight. So should Sooner fans temper their expectations for next year? I mean, I know it's hard to say that to a fan base that expects to win ten games a year. A, should they temper their expectations? And then I guess B, again, this is asking you to predict something way in the future. OU goes nine and three. Are they going to make a playoff next year in a twelve team with that tough of a schedule? On the first question, it's too early to do anything. Like people, people were watching bowl games and being and saying, "Oh my God, OU is going to roll through this Auburn team," as though any bowl game is any indication of anything at this point. Because the twenty twenty three Auburn right. bowl team is not going to be the twenty twenty four team OU sees late next September or this September. Um, I don't think you have to temper your expectations. Uh, one, why would you? It's this time of year. This is the time of year to be excited to look at the portal and say we got. Every guy we got is going to be a stud. There's whatever the track record is of uh, of successful hits in the portal. That won't be us. We're going to hit 99%. Uh, it's the time to be excited. But also, you know, why not? Why can't Jackson Arnold, who's supposed to be the guy, the, the quarterback of the future, come in next year and uh, I wouldn't say surprise us all, but even exceed expectations and be that guy. And that this can be a really good OU team. I think the defense they have coming back you know, sets up to be good. If they can figure things out on the offensive line, I think you got to put your faith in Bill Biedenboe. That should be sorted out. They they have guys at the skill position, so you can be excited. There's nothing, no reason to temper it now. We'll find out next fall what it really looks like. We'll talk, you know, four weeks in next year. As far as the playoff goes, some of it's you know really understanding what the twelve teams going to look like in terms of how we value things. Three losses, you would think against a really tough schedule, you'd have to be in contention right probably on the edge and probably fighting against forces that we can't predict right now like you know if it, is that Tennessee win let's say going to look really good or is Tennessee going to fall off 
and go four and eight and that win doesn't look so good. We can't know that now, but I would think nine and three against that schedule and maybe you schedule your losses at the right time. You know, if it's, I don't know if, if you're Oklahoma, if you should feel comfortable losing to both Alabama and LSU to close the season and then making your case for the playoff, but maybe those will also be two really good losses and, and shoot. I would say if, if Oklahoma heads toward Thanksgiving with one loss, OU fans are going to be pretty thrilled. Um, and maybe that will be good enough for the playoff. But I would, I think nine and three would be a pretty great season, just baseline. Uh, and it might be good enough to get them into this expanded playoff. Yeah, I know we talked about this when you were on with uh, Barry and Jenny and I right after the uh, OU schedule was released and we had a little rapid mm-hmm. reaction video. But eight team or eight game SEC schedule currently. Um, when we talk about how tough Oklahoma's schedule is, I guess my question to you is why would anyone want it to be a nine game conference schedule? And and do you think that's something that in year two of Oklahoma's SEC tenure, does that change or do we do you think we stick with eight? I can tell you one person who wants it to be a nine game schedule, and that's the television networks for the SEC contract. Um it's a it's a mixed bag because you know do team or teams going to be rewarded in the twelve team playoff for beating the crap out of four non conference opponents like next year and really not to any fault of Oklahoma's like I don't I don't know if we should judge what they'll do in the future of its non conference by this coming years because they just had to cobble it together but they've got four teams that they should roll through uh, and and so if you want to pencil in in early January four wins that means they've got to win go five and three. Um, in the SEC to, to get to that nine and three, maybe that has them in the playoff. However, if you're nine and three and you're on the razor's edge and you've got say Texas playing Michigan next year and you know, other teams playing big out of conference games, is that going to hurt OU? Um, that's the question both for next year with OU, but also just the future of scheduling. Do you want to play nine SEC games and add that extra tough one on your schedule, but maybe it helps you or are you better off? playing you know you, i would think and, and joe casiglione's an aggressive scheduler for instance they had george on the 2023 schedule before they had to move it you'd probably see ou playing two cupcakes whatever that means i mean that could be anybody from shoot i say cupcakes i mean they could be playing power five teams like a, a big 12 team um and that's not to diminish any of that but Two teams you'd expect Eli, OU to roll through. Eli called osu yep. a bunch of cupcakes i heard it myself that's what i did just clip that, clip that and put it out there and then I'll throw my phone in, <laughs> in the river. Uh, but no, point being, I, I think you'll see them probably schedule some ambitious non-cons if they're playing four non-conference games a year. I think that changes a bit if it's down to three, but they should probably be playing some some serious non-conference football in the way Texas is now, um, particularly if it's a four game. But it's going to be about what, what gets weighed. Are you going to be repaid for playing tough out of conference games, win or lose, you know you can't get embarrassed. But if you go play Michigan at the Big House in September, that should mean something relative to playing, you know, next year Oklahoma schedule, Temple, Tulane, Maine, and Houston. I should have that fully down, but we're in the swirl of the portal and all that. But you know, that's that's if you, if you go four and zero there, and another school goes three and one, but that one loss is to to Michigan or, or some other big out-of-conference game. How is the committee going to weigh that? That's what will determine what these teams do. I don't know what impact that's going to have on the conference fight in, in terms of how many games they go to between eight or nine. 
you mentioned Michigan playing Texas next year. Uh, Michigan also plays Washington next year. It's a conference game because Washington's in the Big Ten next year. So we're obviously intrigued with the SEC and how that's going to look for Oklahoma. You are, as uh, someone who covers Oklahoma football, and as a Missouri grad, I want to make sure people know that you're a Tiger at heart. But uh, outside of the SEC, Eli, is it a simple answer? Is it Big Ten that you're most intrigued in next year or or most intrigued by? Or, or are you intrigued by, like I am, what the new Big 12 is going to look like as well? So I do think the new Big 12 is going to be a blast just because I think it's going to be completely wide open, wild west. You know, Arizona, we just saw they were really good, finished really well. They'll come in as probably an immediate contender. I don't see any reason, you know, in years, it, it seems like the Big 12 for at least three to four straight years has just produced surprise contenders. Uh, you know, Oklahoma State's kind of done it twice now, 2021 and 2023, TCU the year before that. I just think the Big 12 is going to be wide open and fun. But in terms of sort of sicko college football fandom and just following this sport, the Big Ten's going to deliver because it's going to be, the SEC at least makes some kind of sense. The teams the Big Ten is adding are just kind of all over, and I just think it's going to be fun when you've got, I don't know what the schedules look like when I'm saying this, but USC having to go play Iowa is absurd to me. Um, Oregon going to, to Rutgers is absurd to me. But then you're going to get, it's almost going to be like what the Big Ten is now. The past few years, it's been like a bunch of mediocre teams in Ohio State and Michigan, and we get excited when they play. We're going to get a bunch of ridiculous, craptastic Big Ten football. And then Michigan and Oregon are going to meet in November or something of a given year, and it's going to be incredible. Same for Washington uh, or anybody else. I know this is like catnip for uh, OU fans. It's just it's an easy, like everyone likes talking about this, but I've got USC schedule in front of me here next year, Eli. They hear it. I didn't mention them for kind of a reason. I don't know what they're going to well, look like. Well, they open up neutral against LSU in Las Vegas. Okay. So it's a tough game. Then they play Utah State. So let's go worst case scenario because that's what OU fans want when we talk about USC, right? If you go 0-1 mm -hmm. and lose to LSU, you play Utah State, you get the 1-1. You get a bye week, then you go to the big house in week number four. So 1-2 and two, we're, we're, if we're leaning on the side of likelihood. Then you host Tawi Walker in Wisconsin. Then you go at Minnesota. Now, they're lucky they get Minnesota in October because it can get real cold when you hmm. go up there in November or early December. But you go at Minnesota. You get Penn State at home. Not an easy one. Then you got to travel. So where are we at record-wise at this uh, point? We'll go, we'll go with the loss to Penn State. Again, just to keep it worst-case scenario, we've got them at 3-3. Three and three. Okay? Mm -hmm. Then you're at Maryland. Maryland's not bad. Cross-country trip. You come home and play Rutgers. Then you're at Washington. We'll say they win two of those three. That gets them to five and four, right? They finish the season with Nebraska at UCLA and Notre Dame. I mean, they play one group of five school in Utah State. They play 11 power five schools, a Big Ten schedule, and a non-conference of LSU and Notre Dame. And that kind of goes to your point. If you're going to play nine non-conference or nine conference games, you, I mean, you can make your schedule impossible by scheduling tough out of conference. I mean, Florida's done it with eight conference games with who they've scheduled the conference yeah. as well. So it is a balancing act. It's hard. And, you know, Oklahoma at least has the luxury that USC doesn't. They don't have to bring big name teams in to get crowds in Norman, right? I mean, it's 
It's not like in uh, in L.A. where it, when USC plays Utah State, it's going to be half full. I think, uh, gosh, yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm talking about when I say the Big Ten's just going to be wonky because what did USC do this year to prove to you with Caleb Williams under center that you know they they can't get Maryland can't give them a yeah. tough one yeah. at Maryland that any of those games might not be tough to assume wins there um, is nothing but you know at the same time they could be better and maybe you know they're they're beating Notre Dame at the end of that season but those are that that's where. You know the the reason USC is in the Big Ten, and same for Oklahoma and and Texas and the SEC and the other teams that went to the Big Ten. First and foremost, it was money, so this was not a football decision. But there are going to be football consequences. That's the point, and especially in these early years where they've not scheduled according to their new realities, so to speak. Uh, there's going to be you know USC might be an example, or there might be others who just get kind of eaten up in those years. Um, cause you can't prepare your program. You can only prepare your program so much for the games you schedule out, you know, X number of years in advance. Uh, I take it that LSU game didn't get scheduled after USC, uh, made the move to the big 10 and, and here they are staring that down. That's, that's daunting. And I'm sure Oklahoma fans who have certain feelings about a certain Lincoln Riley are probably salivating this time of year, looking at that schedule. By the way, uh, I don't know if you've seen what, uh, Georgia has done in their future scheduling. I mean, coming up in the next few years, Eli, Georgia in like 2030 plays Clemson and Ohio State in the same year in non-conference. Now, who knows what college football is going to look like in 2030, but Georgia plays Florida State, Louisville, and Georgia Tech in 2027. Uh, coming up in 2026, they play UCLA, Louisville, and Georgia Tech. So, some teams are really leaning into it and really trying to make tough schedules and thinking that maybe eight and four is going to get them in. I do think we're going to see maybe. we're going to see kind of just a recalibrating next year in college football, which should be interesting. I wonder. Uh, well, for one, that could be a conference game with Clemson by twenty thirty. <laughs> That's true. Um, but you know, all this is why, like the if, going back to the SEC debate and what they're going to do in the future. There are schools that want to keep it to eight games. And schools that want to go to nine, it's the schools that have, you know, South Carolina, for instance, has its annual game with Clemson at a conference. Um, it's almost like with, with Oklahoma State and the argument about playing OU that I think is somewhat justified without getting to that whole thing of we're going to play, you know, nine conference games against power five, you know, serious power five opponents and then schedule Clemson if you're, you're South Carolina mm -hmm. or Oklahoma if you're Oklahoma State and say we're going to get that's 10 games. That's a hard schedule. How how on earth? Um, is a team like that supposed to get into the playoff? Now, that is the argument that's been made under the four team where the margin of error is just so thin, but it, I think it still stands. There, you can call it lame or, or whatever else, but if you're Shane Beamer, I get why you don't want to go play nine SEC games and then Clemson, and then you're left with, if you want to schedule them, you know, two cupcake games that aren't getting you much. That doesn't sound like a good outcome. So there, that, that's the split within the SEC. I know with there, there's programs on both sides of the eight-game, nine-game deal. At least a few of them are the teams that, that know they're going to have to keep those rivalries and rightly so don't want to have to play 10 high-level Power 5 games Which is why I think the best chance for Bedlam ever resuming in the regular season is the SEC sticking to an eight-game schedule. Uh, but, yeah, yeah because so. the other thing, too, that Joe Casiglione does is it's it's his scheduling uh it's his scheduling format to try to give the fans one good road trip every mm -hmm. year and you know 
no offense to Stillwater, but that's doing that every other year is not something he's going to schedule with a nine game conference schedule. Now, if you could say, no, go to Stillwater, but also maybe make a trip to Army and get that road trip. You know what I mean? You could work it. You could work it every other year where when you're going to Stillwater, that fun road trip is an easy game, even though it's a good road trip. Yeah, I mean, whatever the appetite is for OU to be playing in any of these major, major neutral site games, you know, like that that USC LSU game in Vegas. I don't know necessarily, and it, that would be dependent on that schedule. But you, if 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 it's a three game non conference schedule, you can count as you said on Joe Castiglione scheduling a certain way for OU, but that probably lands either in one of those big, you know, AT and T College Football Classic kickoff in Vegas or something. Atlanta or some other big stadium do it in Arlington uh, or scheduling just a good game at a at an away site doing a home and home with uh, top of the head you know p- take your pick of of major major program then it gets harder to find that game with with Oklahoma State so I do think the four team uh, four game is your best bet on that coming to pass um, we'll see if uh I don't even say cooler heads prevail. I think it's just going to take time, but we'll see how the SEC schedule and what they land on for the future, what ramifications that has on. I know Jenny wrote about it. Let's be honest. Your best bet here in the near future is them playing in the playoff, which is a possibility uh, or a bowl game. If neither one of them make the playoff. I think either I want, I do wonder just only once you get to bowl season and God, especially now I think the 12 team, just going to further delegitimize all the other bowl games. Yep. Do OU, does one side of OU or, or OSU or both just politically say, we do not want to play that game in a bowl game? It'd be a blast, though. Um, but I do wonder, you know, when you get into that bowl game politics, just of who can say no and who can switch around where they want to play if they do it, but can't flip it in the playoff. And, and why couldn't Oklahoma State and Oklahoma meet? There? I've got the answer to all this, Eli. Week zero. We meet at Chad Richardson Stadium on the campus at UCO. And OU and OSU just play every year in a non-conference neutral site game. It's perfect for everyone. Everybody wins. It will be a great time at Chad. Lovely Chad Richardson Stadium. I think that's a fabulous idea. Every once in a while, I have a good one. Uh, Before we get out of here, Eli, in 60 seconds, who's going to win the national championship game and why? Ooh. Uh, I want the answer to be Washington. I think it really could be Washington, but there's unfortunately something about Michigan in terms of um, apparently the not just the the talent they have, but the coaching. I think they've got that advantage. I really think Kalen DeBoer's done a good job at uh, Washington, but you watch the end of that game uh, where Washington really almost threw that away. Same time, I'm contradicting myself already because did you see the end of that game with Jim Harbaugh calling extra timeout so they could have extra snaps to blow it? Um, so maybe I'm, I'm off on the coaching advantage, but I, as much as I, I mean, I think Michael Penix and Roma Dunze, like that might, that's one of the better college football offenses I've ever seen. Not, I don't think anything's going to touch for a little while, 2019 LSU. And obviously my recollection only goes back so far. Someone who who was watching football in the seventies, eighties and nineties can tell me otherwise, but you know, a, a really impressive offensive attack. I want that to win out. Something in my gut tells me it's going to be Michigan. It's going to be the team with the defense and the team with the run game. 
Um, so I will lean Michigan, but I'll be sitting there rooting for Washington Monday Aside night. Aside from the Lakers, there aren't a whole lot of popular franchises or universities that have purple as their need more purple. Yeah, as their uh, primary color. Hey, so. you know, well, primary. You know who's got a great purple third Clemson. kit? Like usually every two, two to three years. No, Tottenham Hotspur, oh, and like Washington, Tottenham Hotspur will be competing for trophies here in 2024, and that is the thing to really be excited about. Todd is is just the uh, the idea of Ange Postacoglu and Hungman's son and and James Madison and so on uh, lifting a trophy in 2024. I think that we can all be excited for. Is that if there's an equivalent to a Pop Tarts Bowl trophy in the Premier League, that's what Tottenham's going to be lifting this year. Which, by the way, was lifted by another team that wears purple, uh, the Pop Tarts Bowl trophy in Kansas State. So uh, you had to make sense in Tottenham. I think I've given up. Like, if you were going to offer me the chance to like plug any of my work or my podcast, I I just burned that time talking about Tottenham. So I'll which, do it. Honestly, I can deal with as a business problem. I'll do it for you. Eli does have a portal tracker, so you can keep track of all the comings and goings of Sooner players uh, in the transfer portal. Uh, you can check that out and much much more at Eli Letterman dot com. Uh, we've got OU basketball that's getting going into conference season. I know you'll be covering that, Eli, as well. Sooners in a good spot at 12 and 1. Really just need to go, in my opinion, probably 7 and 11 in conference play to make the tournament, uh, which would be, I think, a win this year for Porter Moser and the Sooners. So, Eli Letterman.com. Go subscribe to the Letterman jacket. And uh, while you're at it, why don't you go to the Todd Pod? Well, I mean, you're already here, obviously, but why don't you click that subscribe button if you haven't already? Uh, give us a good five star rating if you like us. I would love for you to give us a five star rating. If you hate the show, I would hate for you to give me a five star rating. Do that. Leave us a comment. All that stuff goes a long way. We appreciate your support. We always appreciate Jacqueline Musgrove, our producer, our creative director, Michael Lane, Bobby Howard, Michael Martin behind the scenes as well. Thanks the most to you, though, for listening and or watching The Todd Pod. Mm-hmm.